The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story, the story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. For populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And and. Good morning. Good Sunday morning. Ah, I'll set up. It's really Saturday afternoon, and I'm sitting in the midst of the Rocky Mountains, um, having an interesting um, uh, retreat with um, a number of other women, um, one of whom, hold that thought, is a Ukrainian. So the bulk of this program is going to be what I've learned about Ukraine, it's complicated, as well as historically and currently corrupt. But before we get to that, and before we started to record the show, um, you know, I've been blessed with intermittent cell service for the last couple of days, but just read the Washington Post Saturday afternoon edition um, which is discussing the fact that U.S. Special Forces troops in Syria yesterday in an observation post were actually bracketed with Turkish artillery in violation of both their supposed neutrality and the NATO uh, alliance to which both the United States and Turkey um, part- uh, belong. And with friends like this, I'm not too sure we need enemies, and I think that goes both ways. It goes in terms of the alliance, of the NATO alliance. Um, It goes to that alliance where Turkey has to make a decision. You're either part of NATO or you're not. If you're going to buy anti-aircraft missiles from the Soviet Union... The United States is not going to provide you the opportunity to buy F-35s so that they can be re-engineered so the Russian missiles can become more accurate. And if you are a Syrian Kurd and you have fought and died, 10 or 11,000 of them have died, uh, working with the United States to defeat ISIS, You don't need enemies when your friends like the United States say, yeah, Turkey, you know, little incursion, 
settling a few Arabs in Kurdish territory, not a bad thing. So since the middle of last week when all of this, or beginning of last week when all of this began, um, my first tweet was, somebody do something. Stop this. Well, perhaps the bracketed shelling of American troops will be enough to get Congress to enact strong sanctions against Turkey next week and to do it with a veto-proof majority. And so with that thought in mind, let's talk a little bit about Ukraine. Ukraine is, you know, from the Bronze Age, we can say. There was a Ukrainian nation that, you know, had language, culture, and, um, and, and land, Okay. Um, it was largely a Cossack territory um, in the early to middle 17th century, about 100 years before, or maybe less than that, maybe 70 years before Peter the Great of Russia, um, when the Ukrainians in a treaty passed in 1654 um, between the Tsarist the Tsar Alexander of Russia and the Cossacks of the Ukraine, who were then in 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 a defensive crouch against an onslaught from Poland and Lithuania as a merged post-medieval army, or maybe if you want to look at middle at at Eastern Europe at that time, a medieval army. Okay, um, and the Cossacks were seeking protection, and they turned to Tsarist Russia. And what I learned today from this person who is a Ukrainian national who has promised me that if I don't identify who she is, one of these days when she's had a chance to check in um, back home, et cetera, she has family in the Ukraine um, right this very minute, um, is willing to come and talk to us on a firsthand basis so that as American taxpayers and as citizens of the world, we have a better understanding of the reality on the ground of what makes this Ukrainian conflict tick and how it impacts Ukraine, Europe, and the United States. So today's lesson is a little bit of background that helps you to understand um, more about you know, how all of this came about and, and what the tensions within Ukraine are that we perhaps um, in our effort to be helpful, um, have the possibility to exacerbate. There is a dispute, apparently, within Ukrainian history, depending, this friend tells me, on whether you were educated with a Russian, she is a Russian-speaking uh, Ukrainian, whether you were, but, but she's a nationalist. She supports the, move, the face of Ukraine facing the West. Um, but she said she grew up with two sets of te- textbooks, one written in Ukrainian, one written in Russian. And it, it uses it, and you get different history from, or a different way of looking at the same historic events. So this 1654 treaty, which begins a formal relationship between Tsarist Russia and the Cossacks of the Ukraine, which has extended extended until 1991, the question is one of intent. Um, 
And I think it can boil down to the Russian intent was to absorb this really rich agricultural um, landmass and its seawater port on the Black Sea. You've heard of Crimea, okay, as a portion of, as a, as a part of the Russian Empire. While the Cossacks thought they were negotiating for the protection of the of of mother of Russia as as a military state that was much larger than they were that they would forsake having an independent Ukrainian army for the protection of the Russian imperial army so again two different views of looking at the same event but the fact of the matter is that from that time forward until 1991, so 350 years, give or take, the Russians controlled the Ukraine. And they did a lot in that period to try to suppress the um, nationalistic tendencies or the nationalistic ambitions of the Ukrainian ethnically Ukrainian people who wanted to continue to develop their own language and their own culture as, and, and to kind of be a nation under the protection of Russia rather than a province of Russia. And so when we come back from our break, we're going we're gonna to jump to the 20th century and talk about um, what Stalin's activities in the Ukraine some of which are really, really um, horrible to imagine, and and how they impacted and influenced um, the Ukraine of today. You're listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org, reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. So as we were saying before the break, what I learned today is that there has been an aspiration among the Ukrainians as an ethnic organism or an ethnic body with their own language, their own traditions, their own culture, even their own way of making lace that continued to exist despite uh, during this period of Russian um, protection, uh, being a part of the Russian Empire, depending on which textbook you read, how you want to interpret that. Uh, And that continued through um, the First World War and the period thereafter with various armies marching through Ukraine, um, either toward Russia or from Russia toward the West. But things got really ugly for the Ukrainians when Stalin came to power in the 1930s. His incentive, although there had been issues um, of, of wanting 
to um, get Ukraine to uh, agree or, or follow Soviet dictates in the um, decade and a half that followed the Russian Revolution and preceded the arrival of Stalin on the scene, there'd been some efforts um, to absorb Ukraine into that Soviet thinking and collectivism and so on and so forth um, that had been less than successful. So again, if you think about my friend's upbringing or her education in the, in, in the Ukraine itself, um, then the uh, desire of the Ukrainians to maintain their, their identity as a nation you know, their own language, their own um, ter- territory, etc. You know, one textbook calls them patriots, and the other textbook calls them terrorism, terrorists. So there's still, in, in her experience, a lot of anger and resentment among today's Ukrainian people that stem from that history. And that history was made worse by a man-made famine in the 1930s that Stalin used to enforce collectivism, where they took the land, they confiscated the land of the small landholding farmer who, you know, had a self-sustaining business, was, but was basically, you know, a peasant. Uh, and they forcibly removed those people from their lands and shipped them off to Catholic um, to other uh, parts of the Soviet Union, um, to um, Siberia and to uh, Kazakhstan and to other parts of the Soviet um, Union. Um, and then they, they destroyed the agricultural backbone of the um, local Ukrainian economy um, there was a movie made about this last year uh, that was very popular in the United States and won a number of awards, and I'm going to apologize that I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but we'll get that information for you. Uh, and apparently hundreds of thousands of people died. And why did they die? Because Stalin wanted to teach them a lesson. He wanted them to understand the consequences of having a sense of economic or political independence. And that situation continued, that Russian dominance, that Soviet dominance, that destruction of um, the local Ukrainian economy continued um, through the Soviet domination that ended in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that moment was heralded by Ukrainian intellectuals who thought it was a moment when this nation, this Ukrainian nation, would would finally be a reality. Well, those intellectuals were looking toward the West. But in eastern Russia, where there's a lot of very heavy industry and a lot of coal mining, etc., there was still a very strong Russian influence that citizens in that part of the Ukraine spoke Russian. They sent their children to college in Russia. Uh, they were intermarried with others they had met either in Russia or, or, or who came from other 
Soviet satellites, etc. And there were some who Stalin had sent in the collectivization period to be colonists in the Ukraine. So despite this intermixture of, of population, um, you've got extra challenges in trying to create a real Ukraine, a, a, a real nation state with its own language. And a lot of those Russian-speaking Ukrainians, my friend not being one of them, um, you know, wanted um, closer ties to Russia. Um, so there was a stirring of a lot of local passions um, and some guerrilla incursions over a period of time. And a lot of that stirring of passions, a lot of those... Um, demands for more um, Russian language, etc., stem from Vladimir Putin's efforts uh, over the last 10 or 15 years to expand again Soviet influence in Eastern Europe, which is one of the reasons that we get involved in helping them militarily, because they're not a part of NATO. Ukraine is not a part of NATO, and yet we give them aid. Since 1991, there have been a couple of actual revolutions in which a lot, I mean, the purposes were the same of both these, the revolutions in 2004 and 2014. Self-determination for the Ukrainian people, the sense among the intellectuals that self-determination wasn't moving fast enough, that a class of professionals, technocrats if you want, we're protesting for a truly independent, democratic, Western-facing, strong, economic, national entity. And in 2004, when the newly installed president was the former head of the Central Bank of Ukraine, people thought that the tide had turned and that they could look forward to prosperity. And it turned out that Yunushenko was just another oligarch. And he was followed by Lokenshev, I'm going to butcher this, Lokenshev, who was a pro-Soviet and was chased out in 2014 and is now living in exile in Russia. And he was followed by Pershenko. We all remember Pershenko because he was the first Ukrainian um, president that we could have a uh, we could kind of relate to uh, because we can't pronounce his name, but we do remember that he was the chocolate baron. But it turns out that Roshan Enterprises, which is his confectionery business, is only part of a portfolio of companies, the most valuable of which were state-owned prior to 1991, and he began to acquire a wide variety of companies uh, from road making, you know, road construction companies to agricultural firms to confectionaries and other retail uh, level um, food products begin into a company which he formed with his father in 1993. And again, most of the valuable assets which that new company took on Okay, were previously state-owned prior to the 1991 dissolving of the Soviet Union. Again, we have 
a level of corruption um, among the people whom the people of Ukraine, let me rephrase that, we have a level of corruption, perhaps not as brazen as the Russians, but similar in nature, between the upper class folks who had been a part of the technocratic, bureaucratic world of the Soviets, who were in a position to take advantage of these things, uh, then became leaders of a so-called democratic country and continued to enrich themselves at the public trust. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the ongoing question of corruption in the Ukrainian path to democracy. You're listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org, reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. So, since the dissolution of the Soviet, we were talking before we went to break, actually, um, about Ukraine attempted path to democracy since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and how, and, and the fact that an ongoing ongoing issues of corruption have challenged the path, their path to self determination, democratization, and economic. Um, revitalization, or maybe we should say economic vitalization, although they have a ton of natural resources and a lot of um, heavy industry that could really be the, the skeletal structure, the infrastructure upon which to build a Western style uh, economy that combines consumerism with manufacturing and services. So, but, but the problem is that that level of corruption is actually useful to the political class because it kind of muddies the waters. You know, it's, it's one of those uh, don't look here, look here kinds of situations. And, you know, it's very hard to solve economic problems when, in fact, so much of Ukrainians, Ukraine's wealth is being drained by oligarchs into Western-numbered bank accounts and Western properties in um, places like the south of France. Um, and, and this friend of mine um, who uh, comes from Ukraine said, and, and is a nationalist, wants to see, uh, despite the fact that she grew up Russian-speaking, she wants a strong Ukraine nation, and her her feeling is that the United States should stop giving extra money to Ukraine in the form of International Monetary Fund credits, because that money is not going to the right people and the right places. It's not being used to develop the Ukrainian economy. It is being drained off back into Western Europe and other parts of the world by these oligarchs, um, and that some of those economic issues are amplified not just by Russian aggression and Russian incursions on Ukrainian sovereignty, 
but by other states, including Western Europe. And that's true right now as Angela Merkel tries to pressure Zelensky into um, a deal with Putin that would um, so-called offer self-determination to the eastern uh, Ukrainians, um, the Russian-speaking portion of the country. And we all know from our experience with Crimea just how independent those elections would or would not be. So, but Angela Merkel um, has people in Germany who are extremely interested in expanding um, the pipeline of natural gas that comes from and flows through the Ukraine and the coal that comes from the eastern part of the Ukraine. And so we don't know whether their push, you know, whether the um, Russian, uh, the German and French push to get Zelensky to sit down and, and see if he can make a deal with Putin stems from an interest in stopping the killing or because it's in the best economic interests of Western Europe for um, the potential bifurcation or independent uh, area within the Ukraine dominated by Russia. We really don't know. And that's a problem because between NATO allies, that should all be very clear. But it points back to the concerns that Joe Biden was sent to um, Ukraine in 2013 to deal with. Uh, the concerns by the International Monetary Fund, um, by the Congress of the United States, by our NATO partners, that the level of corruption in the Ukraine was defeating the purpose of all of these um, credits and um, cash um, infusions that we that the West was te- attempting to make to help the Ukraine get off get up off their knees and onto their feet as an economic nation. There is also a dispute, it is said, as to whether the war in eastern Ukraine is a civil war between Russian-speaking, Russian-leaning Ukrainians and the more Western nationalists, as they call themselves, or if it's a Russian incursion. But the one thing my friend said, and her background is in uh, international finance, is that the, there are a whole lot of people who, are, who have a vested interest in continuing the conflict, that the conflict is an economically beneficial proposition for a number of Ukrainians who are in a position to profit from U.S. military aid because they're the middlemen in terms of buying and selling the equipment to the government um, or in other, in other related areas um, of economic development, etc. And so her comment was that if you want to know where the corruption is and what the corruption means, you have to follow the money. She also said that there are a lot of Ukrainian people 
in Kiev, in the West, in in um, in the South of Ukraine, who, whose feeling is, yeah, have a plebiscite. Let the people in the East decide. If they don't want to be a part of the Ukraine, let them go. But this bloodletting must end because Ukraine cannot be a stable and productive nation as long as that war continues and there is political and social instability in, in the country and refugees and, and, and you know, the unnecessary spilling of, of blood of, the, of the, the young, bright minds of Ukraine. The way that she, that, that she knows it to be is that the West wants, you know, the, the East and West, we've, we've set up part of this. But we've also played into, in some ways, into the Russians' hands. Because the strongly Western portions of Ukraine want a complete split with Russia. They, that's the biggest part of the population. They want an independent, strong, self-determinant Ukraine. But there's another part of the population that is Russian-speaking, which includes a significant portion of the Crimean population that don't want a complete split with Russia. They don't want to not be Ukrainian, but they don't want a complete split with Russia. And they felt, again, because they're intermarried, they're, you know, they have all these kinship relationships, etc. Many of them are Russian-speaking. So they want to be a part of the Ukraine, but they felt that their interests were not being recognized. So they agreed to a plebiscite, which became an uh, invasion um, and a snatching of Crimea because the Crimean people felt they were being neglected by Kiev, but they never thought that Putin, Putin would just walk in and annex them. And there is still strong opposition to that annexation. It is not viewed by the Ukrainian people as legitimate. So that brings us, with all of this swirling corruption, to what the heck was going on um, in the Obama administration when, as I said earlier, we have documented evidence. If you don't want to, don't cut the clip, just play the whole thing. That Biden was sent on behalf of the IMF, the Congress of the United States, the President of the United States, and our Western European allies who are but members both of NATO and the European Union. And these people and these people were concerned or these entities were concerned about the level of corruption and whether or not it was a worthwhile thing for the United States to continue to invest in that, um, in, in that endeavor called the creation of a self-determinant, democratic, economically self-sufficient Ukraine. And we'll be back in just a moment with a few more thoughts about the Ukraine. Listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. 
also, I think that's a really important point that in that the, the power structure or, or the leadership of the Ukraine since the ouster in 2014 of the then president, again, I'm fracturing his name, so we'll, we'll just pass over that, um, was that, that they want to be Western-facing. And, and in so doing, they neglected the interests of some of their um, more, less urbane, less well-educated countrymen who, you know, see themselves as having relationships to Russia. Um, and that there was, there was a legitimate need to recognize that their interests and to acknowledge those interests. Now, would that have changed Putin's calculus? Maybe a little, but let's face it, a, a port, Sebastopol, in, in Crimea is a port onto the Black Sea. And that was important to the Russian Navy's desire to move back out into the Mediterranean. So I'm not sure that even if um, some people felt uh, their interests were not being recognized and, and verbalized by the government in Kiev, um, it is unlikely that they sought to re-enter directly the orbit of the Russians because they had been there, they had been victimized um, under the Tsars and under the Soviets um, as Sebastopol was used as a port. You'll remember the charge of the Light Brigade is about, um, you know, the British efforts to wrest control of uh, Sebastopol as a port from the um, from the Russian army, um, and and so this is not a new conflict. But what does it mean for us today? Well, if you have a plebiscite in the eastern Ukraine it's likely to go Russia's way. Does that mean Russia then takes another piece of the Ukraine and says, oh, part of Mother Russia, I'm annexing it on the behalf of the people in the region who are Russian, right? You can expand that particular line of thinking to include the nation of Georgia, where, again, there is one of these autonomous zones where... Um, people with stronger roots to um, Russia, established historically and through family ties, et cetera, that there were stronger, there are roots and relationships and ties to Mother Russia, which led to the creation of an autonomous zone. And there are now incursions beyond that zone, which are fundamentally a push by the Russians' little green men again, so when you, if you're a, if you're an an American ally, if you are Estonia or Finland or Norway, no, Norway is not a member of NATO, um, or 
Sweden and, and you're looking at um, what's happening in the Ukraine and you look at what the United States in the last week has done to their Kurdish um, allies, and the Kurds have been our allies since the first Gulf War. This is not a new alliance. This is an alliance that now stems 40-plus years of continuous engagement in which the Kurds have taken the brunt of the fighting on behalf of the United States. So if you are looking at what is going on today in Ukraine and what the United States has just done in the last week in terms of their allies, the Kurds, you have to wonder, when you have friends like this, do you need enemies? So if, if you look at what's happening in the Ukraine, you look at the Civil War, you look at the annexation, if you are in Estonia um, and, and Finland, you have to worry about your own sovereignty. It's a serious condition, um, and it has to be addressed in a way um, that, that, that strengthens, not weakens, the, the rules-based Western order that we founded after World War, that the United States helped to make a reality with our presence in the years following World War II. If we want that to be the world's order in the next half of the century, then you know we're going to have to be a reliable ally to the people who are allied with us. And that brings me to just how much like a Max Senate comedy is the Rudy Biden Trump ambassador State Department and other cabinet members comedy that has been our current of the last year of American activity whether formal and legitimate or informal and apparently not too legitimate. Those were two of Giuliani's business associates who got arrested by the Southern District of New York this past uh, Wednesday evening, right after they had lunch with Rudy. But when you have a situation which is so fraught with corruption, and that corruption has made the political situation in that country so delicate, so unstable, how is the United States helping either when the son of a vice president who is there lecturing them about getting better, about corruption, about following the money and, and, and prosecuting the people who have pilfered the public coffers of the Ukraine, Okay, and then his son turns around and gets a $900,000 contract to sit on a board of directors of an oil company. You know, it doesn't matter if it was legal or not, um, which we're told it was, that there was no criminal activity. It looks corrupt. It is not the example that the United States wants to set for the Ukraine about how 
they should govern themselves. And then when you follow it with Rudy Giuliani going around trying to uh, resurrect or um, clean up the reputations of people who the Ukrainians themselves have convicted of malfeasance and have their parliament has removed um, in order to improve the political prospects of his private client, one Donald J. Trump, um, there is a sense that um, we are a part of the problem. You know, that you cannot ask the Ukrainians uh, to behave in a morally upstanding way when, in fact, you are undercutting their very efforts, their very fledgling, teeny, tiny, bitty efforts to start to get beyond a level of corruption which has dominated their politics for nearly 30 years now. So I'm going to kind of end this by saying I hope you found this useful in helping you to understand more about the Ukraine and that I'm leaving you with an interesting question about whether or not, one, it is right for the United States government to seek the help of a foreign government, especially a very weak foreign government that is always subject to corruption in the pursuit of political gain, or whether it is right, as we pointed out last week, for the children of uh, and, and the siblings of our first families to profit on their name, whether, whether it's criminal or not, it kind of says, corrupt, not good. Do we need to pass a law that says that's not good and that's not legitimate and that the children of or, and the siblings of American first families should not or are not permitted to be paid by foreign entities for what are on the surface bogus reasons? I think that's a law we need to pass because people don't seem to understand in this country, as in the Ukraine, that what, what the limits of acceptable behavior are. And on that note, we're going to take a quick commercial break and have a couple of closing thoughts. You're listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org, reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with a couple of closing thoughts. Um, Just one more time. Um, one One can feel the frustration of the citizen, whether Ukrainian or American, when you see what looks untoward um, happening, and you can only imagine that underlying it must be some pretty serious um, corruption. And clearly on the Ukrainian side, we know that's a fact. Okay? And and so maybe it does bear a second look um, by perhaps Congress on um, 
or the FBI or whomever um, about Hunter Biden's activities in the Ukraine. Um, maybe it's, as everyone has said, perfectly above board and approved by the State Department and so forth. But maybe there's a need to talk about that behavior in terms of saying it is not acceptable. You know, the United States cannot preach anti-corruption and walk the straight and narrow if it does not set that example. So maybe there's a need to rethink this. That does not change the fact that what the Trump administration has done to strong arm the Ukrainian government on purely political for purely for political gain does not serve the United States and certainly did not does not serve uh, the interests of Ukrainian aspirations to be self-determinate, um, democratic, and economically self-sufficient. But next week we're going to turn the our attention to a Texan's view of the wall and. I can give you a quick preview. It's different than my view of the wall. But that's what makes for an interesting political conversation. Friends can disagree on policy and still be friends. And I hope that you benefited from this happenstance meeting with somebody who really is a Ukrainian and has a family in, in Ukraine and has in their heart the best interests um, or what they believe the best interests of their Ukrainian um, countrymen uh, is, although that person is a United States citizen at this point. Again, um, she's going to come back uh, with anonymity at some point and give you some firsthand feedback, but I thought this was timely and important. As you all know, Reimagine America is independent and nonprofit. If you enjoy our independent, um, unaligned, um, fact-based approach to political news, then, um, and you'd like to make a small donation toward the cause, I'd appreciate it. Go to reimagineamerica.org, and you'll see a button there. In the meantime, I wish you all a um, wonderful week, and have a wonderful Sunday. Subscribe to the Reimagine America podcast at reimagineamerica.org and ricochet.com. Email Joyce at Joyce at Reimagine America Radio. Follow her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy, all one word. And you can follow the show at Reimagine Radio. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Take a minute now and go to www.reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. And join us again next week for Reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.